Welcome, faithful listeners, to episode 74 of Eventually Super Train. I am your host, Dan. I hope you're doing well. I hope all goes well for you. We are talking about... Well, well let, let me introduce... If this is your first time listening, I'm sorry. I, 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 it's episode 74 and I, I got a little too familiar. Let me tell you what this... This is a short-lived TV show podcast. We cover, uh, we go through three shows in each episode, one episode at a time. So we're on different places. We're on, what is it, episode 13 of one show, and episode 6 of another, and episode 24 of another on this one. So we're all over the place. That's part of the fun. And we're in 1960, and we're in 1984, and 1992-ish, I think, somewhere around there, the general vicinity. So we're all over the place with the show, which is part of the fun. So we cover the short-lived shows. We cover the TV shows that never got enough love in their time. And eventually we will cover Super Train. I, who knows? Who knows? I, I have so many shows I want to cover, but I feel like Super Train might be looming. Mm, maybe. So what are we doing in this episode? We are talking, myself and my friend Amy the Conqueror, are discussing a little bit of Erie, Indiana, and it is indeed 1992, episode 13 of Erie, Indiana. Then I believe it's uh, it's uh, tw- episode 24, Bourbon Street, with my good friend Mitchell Hadley from March of 1960. Hey, wow, that's um, that's over 30 years difference there. And then uh, Amanda Reyes and myself are discussing episode six of Masquerade, which is early. 1984 and it's awesome so it's in that order and we're going to dive right in and we are going to the hole in the head gang episode 13 of Erie, indiana let's do it better weird than dead Episode 13, The Hole in the Head Gang, March 1st, 1992. Directed by Joe Dante and written by Carl Schaefer, one of the show's creators. In this one, Marshall and Simon are investigating a kick-ass old mill and uh, that's supposed to be haunted. I, it's funny, I almost, I, almost, I almost feel like I'm ruining something if I'm going beyond that. They investigate an old mill that's supposed to be haunted. They also learn that the guy who's been running the world of stuff for the past few episodes is a fake. And he's actually kept the world of stuff owner like tied up in a basement. But the world of stuff owner actually isn't too unhappy with that. And it's John Aston. And John Aston tells Marshall and Simon about uh, Grungy Bill, Erie, Indiana's most terrible bank robber who never got it right. And, okay, I'll tell you a little bit. So they go in the mill and they get scared in the mill and they run away, but then they come back, like, really souped up, like, 
um, uh, kids is playing Ghostbusters kind of thing, and they meet this strange white-haired kid who is is only a, a little bit older than Marshall, I think. He's not taller than Marshall, certainly, um, but he has a voice like this where he's doing like Batman uh, from the uh, Christopher Nolan trilogy, uh, Christian Bale, or something. I don't know quite what he's doing there. but And he's a, he's a bit of a weird kid who doesn't quite know who he is or why he's there, but he set up this kind of mill as like a haunted house to keep people away. But then they discover a rusty old gun, and the rusty old gun brings to life the spirit of Grungy Bill. Grungy Bill looks a lot like Sheriff Lobo. Mr. Claude Akins, ladies and gentlemen. Hey! I mean, John Aston. Hey! But John Aston and Claude Akins in the same episode? Oh my gosh. Adam's family and moving on. And of course, BJ and the Baron Sheriff Lobo. Um, that's, those are my own private vices. Oh, I'd love to do moving on on this show, but I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, so it's Claude Akins, and, and, and Grungy Bill is now, he's got his gun back, which is no longer rusty, and he kind of recruits Marshall to join him to rob the, the bank in Erie. Again, I, I forget how many times they say he's tried to rob it, but he's going to try to rob it again, and things go a little weird, and things go a little strange, and it's Erie, Indiana, baby. All right. Amy is standing by. In fact, here we are. The Hole in the Head Gang, everybody. Not only do we get John Aston, but we also get Claude Akins. They're not in the same scenes together, I don't believe. I don't think they have any scenes together. But No, they don't. But one can dream. Uh, so this is the whole of the head gang, a little more eerie Indiana for everybody, and I am here with the great, the wonderful, the stupendous Amy the Conqueror. Amy, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? I am good. I would like to know what you thought of the whole in the head gang. <laughs> <laughs> you okay? Oh yeah, I'm much better now. <laughs> I actually love this episode. Uh, you already mentioned John Aston and Claude Eakins, and that yes. you know was a big sell for me. But mm-hmm. I thought this episode had everything I would like. We have westerns, we have ghost stories. I just I like this one a lot. <laughs> Probably one of my favorite episodes so far. Yeah, I I think I'm 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 pretty much with you there. I like the way that it. Um, I mentioned in the previous episode that I didn't think there was enough going on in Tornado Days. Uh, this one has a lot going on. And I think it has kind of the right amount of stuff going on. Because um, uh, it starts off it starts off like at the Hitchcock Mill. You can tell you're in Joe Dante town because you're naming stuff after <laughs> directors. Um, uh, it starts, and I swear I recognize that Hitchcock Mill. I feel like that's on the Universal Backlot or somewhere. I, I, the moment I saw that, I recognized that, and I thought that must be so much fun to hang out at. But uh, I, 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 um, I like yeah the way it starts off with uh, that and haunted house stuff, and then that really weird sequence with um, Fred Sykes who was pretending to be Mr. Radford at the World of Stuff. 
and they haul him away in a straight jacket. What did you think of that scene? That kind of came out of nowhere, but I assumed it's because they wanted John Aston on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a it's it's a really great scene too with John Aston because um, you know what I just I just noticed something. I have the episode playing right here. I did not notice that as John Aston is leading Marshall and Simon to the soda fountain counter, soda counter, um, uh, to, to, to get them something, they pass a tub of uh, foreverware 50% off. I didn't notice that before. I don't know why I didn't see that. <laughs> I didn't notice that either. Um, because that will actually come back later on in the episode a little bit. Um, but, the, but there is a great bit where it's just, it's just this, this storyline of, oh, yeah, he's kept me locked up in the basement for months. And uh, so you don't want to prosecute? No. When he was in charge here, he sold more than I ever did. I don't know what his secret was, but I like the way he's, <laughs> he's so amiable. He's been locked up in the basement for months. It must be a great basement. And it, it right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, it's a it's a basement with like a, a living room, dining room, kitchen, three bedrooms, two baths or something like that. I don't know. Um uh, but uh, yeah, it kind of, and then yeah, you, you get the the haunted house thing. Then you get this weird thing with the world of stuff. Then you get the story with Grungy Bill. Then you get that weird kid. Then you get the Grungy Bill stuff. Then yes. you get like all this backstory with the weird kid. And then you get Marshall dressed up like a, you know, a you know like a nineteenth century, I don't I don't I don't even know school marm or something like that. And then. <laughs> ghost stealing toasters and there's like i mean there's this was written by one of the creators of the show and so whenever i see uh, unless the creators write every single episode like say i bring it up that often but it's true green acres or beverly hillbillies when the creators come in and write an episode when normally they dole them out i always like to think that um this is kind of an important one so kind of having john aston <laughs> in it and uh, all the all the stuff they're doing with the haunted house and and the ghost and I mean he's clearly a ghost. It's clearly a ghost picks up a toaster and carries a toaster through the bank. So it's not like they're hiding anything here. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's pretty. I I thought it was. Um, I do. I don't. You know, when I watched it, I came away from it thinking I really like that episode. I'm wondering if it's if it is my favorite so far. The Foreverware certainly is is up there too um yeah i don't know i don't know but yeah definitely this is like you said this is if i were to i don't know that i show this to someone first just because that world of stuff thing might require right. ex explanation this might be the second episode i show it's, although the the missing this the one where everything goes missing is really lovely too um yeah i'm not uh but yeah, this is definitely high. What what did you think? Okay, the the big thing here, apart from Claude Akins and John Aston, what did you think of the white haired kid with no name? Uh, well, his voice was silly, but I got used to it. Yes. <laughs> and I see what they're going for. Uh -huh. I mean, um, I like that actor, so yeah, I, I thought he was a good addition, and he's obviously going to be around. They kind of seem like they're introducing him for a reason, yes. so. So I'm curious to see where that goes. I don't quite remember from when I watched it uh, years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, so yeah, I like him. I I think it's a good storyline so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the 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 scene where he and Simon are tied up together is really great. When you learn more and more about him, that he just appeared in the town and he doesn't remember his name, and it's just uh, and he's kind of doing you know that that kind of. 
if if you could put up with Christian Bale's Batman voice in the in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, yes. you could put up with his. <laughs> he's kind of doing hey, and I can't even do it. I, I don't know that I could even do it. He's got hey, what do you? Th-? No, I can't do it. Even he's he's kind of doing, it, and it just it does look. A little, there there are one or two moments where it kind of calms down a bit. It, it, it's yes. um. I almost kind of wish there was one point where I almost kind of wish he was doing like a Bobcat Goldthwait voice. Um, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't. I was almost <laughs> wishing he was more like screaming all the time. Um, but the, yeah, he, he's, it's kind of interesting to see him and he's, he's kind of, he, he, he's, he's threatening, but only in that way that like someone who's slightly bigger than you when you were a kid and who could talk a little meaner was threatening. He doesn't. And, and of course he has those jumper cables that he slaps together to scare him. I guess that that's a bit on the threatening side. Um, but, uh, yeah. but, but yeah, he's, um, I, I, th- I think one of my favorite scenes in it is the scene where he's tied to Simon and especially Simon is getting more and more moments where I am almost liking him more than Marshall on occasion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because like in the last episode you had Dijon, uh, and this one you have the, his great delivery of when they're tied together and they're trying to knock themselves, topple themselves and he says something like, what's your name? And the kid says, I don't know what my name is. And as they're falling over, Simon yells something like, how do, you, how do you not know what your name is? Or something like this. And his delivery of the line <laughs> is hilarious. And, um, yeah, I, th- I, think, I, I think it's one of those where you, you see um, uh, the, the white-haired kid. And he kind of comes up in there, and you think, okay, so all this stuff in there has been faked. And then all of a sudden, freaking Claude Aiken shows up. And you're like, what? Yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he's clearly a horrible gunfighter or a bank robber. I'm not a gunfighter. Bank robber. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it, it really, the more I think about it, and, again, I have it playing here. The more I think about it, the more I um, – and there's even the thing, too, as I'm watching it, the white-haired kid is shorter than Marshall. They're about the same age. He's short. He's just that he's he's got the white hair, and he has a mask that he's using, which I think, and this is going to be a very specific reference to this moment in um, Blu-ray releasing. Um, uh, Synapse just released the really weird-ass Claudio Fragasso film Night Killer on Blu-ray, which I picked up. I don't. Have you seen that one, Amy? I have not. I recommend it highly. It's sort of an erotic thriller mixed with a bit of slasher that just goes completely wrong in every way, shape, and form. <laughs> a lot like most Claudio Fragasso films. Um, and the mask he has is looks a bit like the mask that the killer wears in uh, Night Killer. Um, but uh, not quite. But I just saw it and I thought of it. Um, yeah, yeah, I quite like this episode. What's... Um, what uh what what was your did you have a favorite part or or um was it just all overall? I did like the the bank scene because there was a lot going on in there. What first of all, why does the bank look like it's from the eighteen hundreds? Yes. <laughs> um, and then you have the teller looks exactly like the old Radford who just yes. got taken away in a yes. straitjacket. Yes. Um, I mean, so many things. Everybody there looks like they're wearing a costume of some sort. There's a nun. There's like a Shriner. There's, I don't know, a bunch of stuff going on. And, there's, and, there's the, and the, then, of course, you have the mother and daughter yes. discussing the forever wear. Yes. My, and, and could that be a couple episodes ago, I mentioned, uh, during Marshall's theory of believability, could the reason why no one 
kind of gives a crap about what Marshall's doing is because they already know how weird it is, but they're kind of satisfied. Right. So, so, and so this is just an outsider and like a bored kid, like Simon, just kind of like, okay, we get it. You, um, you know, it's, uh, it's weird. We're weird, but we're happy. And, you know, the town, um, is, is prosperous as, as it is. Um, because yeah, they're as they're in there, a mom and a daughter walk in straight out of the Foreverware episode talking about Foreverware, and so it's like it's it's still going on, you know. And we saw that tub with Foreverware fifty percent off, which implies maybe that it's gone out of fashion, or that's right. old. That is old Foreverware. That was sort of my thought. Could there be a new generation of Foreverware? That is is possibly ah. more, I, I, like more, even more um, potent, as it were. But Makes you actually younger. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that could be it. Like a wow! Yeah, um, uh, that would be something. Yeah, I I like I like the fact that um, you you think at the end of Foreverware that this Foreverware has been banished from the town, but no, it's still there. Is a tub of it on sale at the World of Stuff and. Uh, and, and presumably it was the previous guy who, who put it in the tub since Radford just got out of the basement. So, um, right. and, uh, and wasn't he also the, the guy, Fred Sykes, Fred Sykes. Why do I, um, I'm going to have to look up that name. Um, he, he seems to need, now he seems to be working at the bank. He took over the world of stuff and wasn't he like when the, the sheriff, and Andy go and kick uh, Professor Zircon out of town. He's one of the guys there. He has like a vacuum cleaner yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah, he has a badge on and a vacuum cleaner yes. or something. <laughs> I I am wondering. I am wondering if this is something like where he's in every episode doing something. And ah, you know, and, and maybe did we this... miss him in the other episodes or possibly? I mean, like being other people. Yeah. I... I am wondering if we did because that's in in the course of what three episodes he's been three different some sort of deputy head of the world of stuff and now a bank teller. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if he has been in all the episodes in one spot or I bet he has. I bet he's been like a mailman or something like that, building to something. Right. You know, maybe. Hmm. All right. Um, uh, so I will just say I always love Claude Akins. Not only does he have a great butt, but he is he he is awesome <laughs> in everything. That's a little that's a little uh, MST. If if anyone here, uh, there's an MST episode. Was it Master Ninja with Claude Akins, uh, where they show episodes of The Master, which is a great short-lived show. And Claude Akins is in one of the episodes, and he walks away from um, Tim Van Patten, director of sh now of shows like Game of Thrones. Um, but a goofball back in the master. Um, and Claude Akins walks away, and I think it's Crow says, mm, Claude Akins, what a butt. And uh, I, I, think <laughs> I, I think I burst in hysterics when I first heard that. But, um, yeah, Claude Akins from um, Night Stalker to one of my favorite shows, which won't be on Eventually Super Train because it ran for two seasons, uh, Moving On, the trucking show with Frank Converse, uh, to, of course, Sheriff Lobo. I love Claude Akins. I can watch him all day long. There's something about him. Um, he's I, I agree. I, I he's the thinking man's Forrest Tucker, and I don't know what that means. I just made that up. <laughs> uh, uh, so, I, what else do you have on this? I, I got a lot of notes on this. I'm, I won't go crazy. 
didn't in an episode earlier in the season, weren't they making some other sort of Swedish dish? Because the mother, while they're in oh, yeah. at the uh, banks and they're there to get the toaster, says they're having Swedish toast for dinner. So yes. I can't remember, but I don't think it was Swedish toast. But no. they had another Swedish Swedish meal that I had to look up, and I did look up Swedish toast, and all I got was something with cardamom on it, and <laughs> they, there didn't seem to be a real straight recipe for what it actually is. <laughs> um, did they have, like, Swedish meatballs so I'm like, is that something, something they yeah. made up? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, no, they that, had something else on an earlier episode, I swear. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I'm pretty sure you're right because I wrote down Swedish toast as a note. And um, I, I write down a lot of notes that I don't actually refer to uh, ever. Um, but I wouldn't have written it down unless I thought it was something. I feel like I feel like Swedish toast. Yeah, I feel like, gosh. You know what? I'd hate to have this be something where we get to the end of the 19 episodes and think, like, we have to go back and rewatch all of them to catch all these little things that they dropped in, which would be great, <laughs> which would be great. Which I'm probably going to do anyways. <laughs> which I probably will do. Yeah, yeah. I usually wait uh, a couple of months before I watch uh, an episode of something that I've covered on here again. But, um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that would be that would be cool. Oh, I do have uh, Simon and his guns. Simon does not like guns. We don't like guns. He doesn't like guns. I'd like to think Simon is a fan of MacGyver, and that's why he keeps saying that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know for certain. Ah. He could have been watching MacGyver. Well, I did did write that in my notes as well. Yeah, yeah. Not the MacGyver part, just that. I like that Simon was very anti-gun, and he kept bringing it up. (laughs) Yes, yes. We don't like guns. We don't do guns. That's not the way we go. Um Let's see, Grungy Bill, um, Claude Akins. I just have Claude Akins with two exclamation points next to it. Um, I knew I'd, <laughs> I knew I'd remember John Aston, but whenever Claude Akins shows up, it's like there you go. Yeah, I, I you know what I uh, uh, bit. <laughs> oh, he's on the screen right now. Um, uh, I like the um, the the interesting bit that. Um, uh, Oh, well, there's the nun who, here you go, ma'am, $1,800,000. And the nun nods and takes her money. <laughs> and it's just very casual. And and, yeah, and, and like you said, there's a, there's a guy with a fez. And at the next um, yes. at, the, at the next window, there's a fisherman. And you could tell he's a fisherman because he's dressed as a fisherman. And he has his fishing pole at the window. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty fun it's a pretty fun bank scene. Oh, um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, oh, it's interesting that um, Grungy Bill knows what a mini mall is, but he doesn't know what a toaster is. Ah, because, good, good call. <laughs> yeah, because he says at one point um, they're just going to tear this the Hitchcock mill down and put in a mini mall. Um, but then he doesn't know. I'm so glad I got a toaster. I don't know what it is, but I'm so glad I got one. Uh, <laughs> and can I just say, I just saw the Hitchcock Mill thing again, and it's clearly, um, I mean, obviously, Erie, Indiana, you know, like the streets they're on, they're they're back lots. Um, there's, I don't think they try to, they try to hide. I mean, to me, it's very much like the Burbs. I mean, they don't try to. to whenever I watch the Burbs, to me, it's a back lot. They don't try to hide it. Um, that's mm-hmm. part of it. And right. the, hitch, the thing I love about the Hitchcock Mill is like when Marshall's strolling out with, with um, Grungy Bill, it's it's like, yeah, that's clearly something they some they built 
on the Universal Studio lot or something like that. Um, I've been on there numerous times. I know know I've seen that, whether it was on the tour or whether it was when I was doing extra work and was driving through the lot or walking through the lot. And I know I saw that because the moment they start walking through that, I thought, oh, I love that so much. I love that facade so much. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just thinking fondly of of one of the joys. Yeah, one of the joys. Have you been on a lot of like movie studio uh, lots, Amy? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> hmm. It's it's worth it's worth if you can get on at least one. N- not just to see. Um, not just to see like you know. Uh, oh, there's a you know um, that they shot some of Jaws there, or they here's this uh, set from they did earthquake on or something like that but just to see all the other houses and all the other little spaces in the streets and there's some there's something about uh sort of wandering on and seeing like a street and then like when i used to do extra work like it was uh there's there's this street this beautiful street and it looks gorgeous okay we need you to go into that like the clock tower from back to the future like i've been in that building mm-hmm. where the clock tower is you know and obviously it's a, it's a huge clock and it was when i was on buffy and um, yeah, I say that as like, look, look for me on Buffy. You know, I, I, you know, it's like I think I walked out a door. I drove a car by a scene, but I was on Buffy for a day. And but you're we were, still on Buffy, so. Yes, yes, and we were at, we were at that space that the big town square with the jo- uh, shark still looks fake, you know, with the Mister Sandman, you know, when Marty wanders out onto the street. Uh, where the clock tower is, I was there, and I was inside the building where the clock tower is at the top of, and I, you know, it was, uh, that was Buffy's, I think she was in college, and we all had to pretend like we were walking out of there after class, and um, so I, I love, you, 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 you know it's fake, but it's just, it's just so much fun, and the great thing about this is, like, there have probably been a dozen other things movies or tv shows that probably more that use this same mill and they all once someone walked once someone walked inside the interiors were always different unless i'll be honest the interior that they walk into of this mill is pretty shoddy not shoddy like it looks like you know like they did a cheap job on it but it's meant to look abandoned and run down it might actually be what is there in the mill i don't know because they do have to have something there um but uh but yeah this is i i love that set there there are sometimes you hit sets on studio lots where it's just like i want to live there i want to be in that place and this is one of those it's awesome so um (laughs) i'm sorry that was a little tangent folks i'm i'm yeah uh, uh but what what do you have anything else for this one amy no i think we pretty much covered it I think, you know, we both liked it, and yes. yeah, it's one of the best episodes so yeah. far. Yeah, um, I, I will say, I've got two more things. One is, um, uh, they're still doing that thing with the executive producer credit uh, at the at the very end. In the Tornado one, the executive producer credit kind of spins towards us, and in this one, Marshall kind of like, has like a box that has something in it i don't like oh it's the is it the toaster i don't know what it is and kind of like the the executive producer credit kind of comes out of marshall's like side like it's out of a holster like he's pulling a gun and it shoots up in front of the frame uh. um 
and then and then there's just a great little bit of physical comedy where um, Marshall hands the note to the teller, who is apparently Fred Sykes, and Fred, he's having trouble opening it up. The first thing he says, which is one of my favorite lines, "Do you want me to throw this away for you?" He's like, "No, read it." Uh, but <laughs> o- over the over the credits, you see him trying to open this note, and it's like it's so um, grungy. Bill, he's a bad bank robber. He's kind of. Uh, wrapped it up so tightly that the guy can't get into it, which I think is a very nice bit. So, um, yes, uh, Amy and I agree. I think that this is one of of the thir- – is it 13, right? This is the 13th episode? I'm lost. 11, 12, 13. I believe so. Yes, I would say this is top three, I would think, just off the top of my head. Um, maybe even higher. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, this is a great one, and I'm going to say Amy – where can I find you online? I don't want to know where any of these other proles can find you. Where can I find you? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Amy underscore the underscore conqueror. Awesome. All right. I, I guess I'll end this just asking the question to all of you listening. Who is that strange white slash gray haired kid? Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Episode 24 of Bourbon Street Beat. March 21st, 1960. Again, where were you? I was minus 13. And probably having a better time than I'm having right now. But that's okay. We're going to have a good time here. Directed by Mr. William uh, Holt Jr., the guy who did Ghost of Drags for Apollo, written by Dean Reasoner. It is Neon Nightmare. The episode, this episode is a lot going on, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go too deep into it because I don't want to ruin it. When I started doing the show, uh, all my plot descriptions were excessive, apart from Cobra. Uh, with Amanda, it's okay because Amanda and I, I sort of go in and around and over and under it. But, but um, I, I, I'm trying not to be too excessive now, so I will just I'll be, keep this very simple. Uh, the episode begins with Cal apparently quitting the detective agency, punching Rex in the face, taking off, driving very recklessly into a place called Midas County or Midas. Yeah, I think it's Midas County. Um, and he gets arrested and he meets the sheriff, who isn't very nice. And he meets the mayor, who isn't very nice. And they kind of, you know, tell him to get out of town and take a bunch of his money. And he ends up stopping at a, at a motel, like the Highway Motel. He meets a guy named George Johnson, who is there to help him because Cal is there to help his uh, brother, stepbrother. Cal, we learn in this episode that Cal was adopted. And he was adopted by the Tolliver family. And Jeff Tolliver is running from so- some sort of uh, uh, state, um, state government position. Uh, in in New Orleans, and he he knows that he's not going to win on the platform he's on. He's on a reform platform. And he's not going to win if they can't sort of bring down uh, some of the nastier elements in the state, Louisiana. Did I say New Orleans? I guess it's it's New Orleans. Um, 
Um, I does it really matter what it is? It's just his. It's his a uh, stepbrother, Jeff Tolliver. He's running for something or other, some sort of office, and he needs his brother uh, uh, Cal to go into Midas County, which is the um, the sleaziest. County. It's like Orly County from BJ and the Bear. It's the sleaziest county around. And it's kind of run by a man named Tate. I think it's like Billy Bob Tate or something like that. Uh, and he's got like the sheriff under his thumb. The sheriff does not like Cal. And what Cal does is, with the help of George, he sort of ingratiates himself into Tate's world and the casinos and clubs and things like that. And uh, we learn that that sort of there are several women who are undercover, like uh, as uh, at the at the various tables at casinos, who can help him out. And obviously, George can help him out. It becomes one of those things where uh, Cal has to ingratiate himself into the world of Tate, and he does it by. Uh, 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 collecting $500 from some club owner who the sheriff hasn't been able to get the money from. Uh, and so he kind of like becomes friends with Tate and he work, he's working for Tate and he kind of meets the undercover gals. Undercover gal. And he's trying to, basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to find proof, absolute proof, more or less sort of like the books, as it were, that show how sleazy and crooked all of this place is. As you can imagine, things will go wrong. I'm not going to go too in-depth into it. Mitchell and I will cover some of that, and we won't cover some other bits of that. But suffice it to say, this is an episode where Cal goes undercover-ish in a town, in a county, to try to find out, to try to help his stepbrother and find out the, the sort of core of their corruption. And I am going to leave it there and give you this blast and Mitch, Mitchell is on the other side of this blast, you Mitchell lovers. I know you're out there. I get your emails. Here's a blast. Mitchell's on the other side. Bourbon Street Drinks. Every time I see the title Neon Nightmare for this, for the two times I watch it and I have it playing right now, I think the exact same thing. Neon Noodle? It's Neon Noodle from, the, the, you know, Duck 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 Twacy. Is it Duck Twacy? I forget. You know, Daffy Duck and Neon Noodle, and he makes him eat it. Jo- you guys know what I mean. Knock it off. Mitchell, you know what I mean, don't you? I always know what you mean, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Neon Noodle. Hey, everyone, it's Mitchell Hadley joining me for episode 24, for heaven's sake. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? The the, the furthest, furthest, furthest along we've gone is 26. Green Hornet had 26 episodes. We're at 24th episode of Bourbon Bourbon Street Beat, Neon Nightmare. And I want us to dive right into this one. Mitchell, what did you think? I'm going to, did I ask you how you're doing? I don't have time. Uh, Mitchell, what did you think? Of I just simply don't uh, of Neon Nightmare. Well, I thought that it was for the most part a good episode, but there's something that happens near the end of it that I 
had a lot of trouble getting past, and we'll talk about that when we when we get to it probably because it involves a lot of what has happened up to that point that we don't necessarily want to get into. But there was something that happens. There's a plot twist in there and an ex- explanation for it that that distracted me for the rest of the episode, and I found that to be. Um, well, distracting, but also I, I, I spent so much time trying to work it out that it, uh, and I never was able to do it satisfactorily, but I thought that that got in the way of what otherwise had some really nice points to it. Because it starts off with a bang, and talk about misdirection. You wonder, for the rest of the episode, you're trying to figure out what's real, what's put on, is all of it real, is all of it fake, who can you trust, who can't you trust. It's set up very nicely up to that point. I am now dying to know exactly what you're talking about. I'm looking at my notes <laughs> and desperately <laughs> in my mind. And even my dog my dog just started freaking out. George, he he's, he even wants to know. I guess um what what we maybe what we'll hi George. What we'll do what we'll do in a minute or, or a few minutes maybe is I'll 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 ask you to give me a clue. And because okay. I'm 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 in, I, I um because I'm looking at my notes here, and I feel like I should know exactly what you're talking about. But that's one of well, the Well, again, this Mitchell could be a situation. Is, a mystery. Yeah, I could. I, I'm an enigma. Yes, I. Um, <laughs> oh, really? I thought you. I, I thought you were Catholic. You know. <laughs> but yes, I'm sorry. Old joke, folks. Oh, no, but oh, then no, I'm no, old. No. <laughs> it could be it, this. This could be one of these situations, heaven forbid, where I'm reading more into the scene than I should be, and oh. that I can't just let it lie. So, I this this okay. may be something that has a perfectly plausible explanation. But we'll, you're right. We'll get to it in a, its own good time. Okay. Um. I. Uh, I. I personally. Yeah. This episode begins with, with a bang and sort of as as I said in the breakdown. It's like what? What is happening? What's going on? You were here. We're there. We're everywhere. And it's it's um it's it's a very Cal heavy episode. Uh. It's 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 mm-hmm. mostly Cal. Um. I think. Uh. I think. I think it does. Uh. It's funny because the moment it started like that, all I thought of was the white heat homage episode and I thought what are we going to be homaging this time and luckily we didn't do that um it is it is a great sort of I what I actually thought of because I am as jejun as the day is long I thought of Orly (laughs) County from BJ and the Bear with Sheriff Lobo I thought of BJ who keeps in, in the TV movie and the first season of BJ and the Bear, he keeps winding up in Orly County, which is the sheriff and everyone, Lobo, he's corrupt and everyone else is corrupt. And in the, in the TV movie, BJ and the Bear, they're corrupt in unpleasant ways. In the series, they're corrupt in more Glenn A. Larson goofball ways. Um, but that's kind of what I kept thinking that that this was sort of uh, BJ and the Bears. Now it's not at all. It's not at all. It's 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 more serious than that, and it's it's a bit darker than well, not not the, like I said, the, not the TV movie BJ and the Bear is actually kind of dark. But I, I I love to see Cal dive into that, and I love the reason why he does it. Unless that's the reason yes. what you're talking about. Is that what you're talking about? No. No, it's not. Oh, it's, oh, good. A, it's a con. Okay. It's an outgrowth of it, but that's not. That's not it. What may I'm, I was going to mention that? 
Yeah, the reason Cal... Yeah, I was just going to say, the reason Cal does what he does is what makes you always want Cal to be on your side. Yes, yes. Now, now, I don't don't want to ruin what you're going to say. May I say what, um, why Cal is there? Yes. Okay. Um, Now, we, we actually talked an episode or two ago about families with all of them. And I won't go back and go over the families. But one of the things I mentioned was that we don't know who Cal's family is. And we learned that Cal was an orphan in this episode. And that he was put up with the, is it the, the Tolliver? Was that the, the name of the family? I, feel I like that's, think so, yeah. Yes, I feel, I feel like I wrote it. Yes, Jeff Tolliver. The Tolliver families and his sort of f- brother there was Jeff and Jeff is now running for office and that's why um Kells in um Midas County um because he needs to they need to break the corruption I said all this in the in the breakdown but um but yeah so 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 you learn that yeah like like you said it's it's like the the fact that you know like you know like you know I probably do this you know I I don't have a a Full brother, sorry, Mike, if you're listening, he's not listening. My 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 brother is he's my half brother. He's my step brother. He's my step brother. I have a I have a sister, a half sister, and a step brother, and they're all great. I love them all. But um, but I I'd love I'd love to think that if need be, I would go into some horrible hick county to try to help him out. Um, I might not. But I'd like to think I would, and that's what gets me up in the morning. So uh, this this episode, I, I like this episode quite a bit. I like the um um I, I like the sort of the the corruption and trying to figure it out, and I like the fact that the um the the thing that they're looking for is more or less hidden in plain sight, um, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of been been a theme that, that was kind of sort of the killer in the last one was kind of uh, like that too. Um, and I like, I, I like just a good corrupt town that's so corrupt that you you can't yes. do anything. You know, it's like you just can't do anything, and it's just like eh, it's just great. You know, the fact that the mayor of the town is Willie the Witcher from the Green Acres episode "Water, Water <laughs> Everywhere" is nuts. Nobody's richer than Willie the Witcher, and I'm like, that's friggin' Willie the Witcher, who's the corrupt mayor, and and I. There, there, there are a few things that, and I love the fact that Cal and Rex meet some new lady friends. Although, where's Lusty? What does she think of this? I know, I know that uh, that's yeah. troubling. That's not what bothered me, that but is, that is troubling. Because at the, at the end of the episode, uh, Rex and Cal are making out with these two. Like, um, I don't know. Are they are they some sort of agents or something? I, I don't know exactly what they were. They're like Bond well, girls. They're like the Bond girls. Of, of yeah, the yeah, they're, they're, they're undercover. Undercover, yes. And so they can make mm-hmm. out with them. And you know what? Making out's fun. I mean, it's me and Mitchell. You, we're the kings of making out. So you know that we know what we're talking about when we say making out is fun. Yes. So, yes. so, so. Take but, it to the but, bank. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> And, and, but but not having Lusty there is a little odd, uh, and I will I will say though uh, that the the oddest moment of the episode for me is most of the episode Kel is helped by this guy who's sort of an agent named Johnny I believe, 
and they mm-hmm. they have one of those gr- great moments where Cal is getting money for big the big guy whose name I forget. I need to write things down bigger on paper, but the big guy who I mentioned earlier in the breakdown. And didn't he get Cal the money in a smooth way too? Yes. Oh yeah. That's so he does. Oh. He does it so cool. It's it's almost like. I almost missed it the first time I saw it. It was so smooth. Yeah. I was like, whoa, he just got the money. And, but it's just one of those great moments where um, Cal is like leaving with a gun, and then someone appears behind him with a gun, then Johnny appears behind that guy with a gun, and they get out of there. And uh, and it's great. And, um, but but the, I will say one of the one of the moments I I don't know. I I guess I guess we don't need to. To super, it doesn't need to be super dwelled on, but but sort of the fact that this Johnny character who I really liked is sort of killed off screen, and you only sort of hear about it like he's dead. Yeah. What? And it's like give him a little more than that. You don't. He, he deserved more. He he deserved more than that. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I agree. Um, because he he was a good. I I will say that the thing I liked about his character too is that there were a few moments where I thought, is he going to turn against Cal? But the great thing is, he doesn't. He's he's true right. blue until they they freaking kill him. But then they don't give him the. It's yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's 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 almost like maybe they like we meant to shoot a scene where we killed him, but we ran out of money, so we just had a guy came in and said that sounds like a Doctor Who thing. We had a guy come in and said he's dead. Oh yes, that's that's the Doctor Who story, the invasion, I believe has from 1968 i believe has a scene where a character is like where there's like um we got in a huge battle and everyone died you know, or something like that what happened to this guy he got killed oh yeah oh gosh okay rather and it was supposed to be shot but they didn't have the money or the time so they just had someone come in and say it and that's kind of what that feels like here um yes but, yeah uh, i was a little disappointed about that yeah, what what else do you have on this one, Mitch? I, I, there's well, a lot going on here. I, there is. I'm going to delicately describe the situation oh. that that bothers me, and what I will what I will say about it is that for particular reasons, it is important for Cal not to be identified as a private detective. Um, if he if he was, it would blow his cover. So, but but he has to give enough of his background to lead them to believe that he was a former private detective and just corrupt enough. And so the the um, the corrupt officials wisely come up with the idea. Well, let's call the agency he used to work for and make sure that he isn't on an assignment because I'm suspicious of him. And so the, the, the corrupt sheriff does, he calls the agency and he says he wasn't there, but I I talked to the girl and we know who that has to be. And she said, Mr. Calhoun isn't here right now, but I expect him back in a few days. And when when you put this in the context of Cal's efforts to indicate that he is not a private detective, the question comes back to me, why did Melody say what she did? Yes. 
Okay, yeah, why I just I just leaned I just leaned back I'm in going. my chair, which I never do. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And that and there are there are some explanations for them for what she did. None of the explanations are particularly satisfying. A couple of them are kind of plausible. To to say any more about it would really be to give away one of the great parts of this episode, so I'm not going to do it. But the the fact, nonetheless, is that for reasons which become apparent, Melody should have understood that the official line is that Cal is no longer with the agency. And instead, she gives this answer, which is, which is entirely consistent with Melody if she had not been told what was going on or if she had not witnessed what was going on. But it is difficult to believe that and so any explanation that you come up with winds up being unsatisfactory and i so i'm sitting for the last 15 minutes of the episode going over this in my mind trying to come up with a something that that is that makes sense and um, if if I'm not careful, I start to lose track of what's going on. You know, R- Rex appears, and Rex's appearance is a tip-off because now they know that Cal is a detective and he's on the job. And the if they they knew that if they saw Rex, that Cal's cover is blown and all this kind of stuff. And it it it's it's for me even more egregious than that episode we looked at early in the run where Cal forgets his limp. When he's undercover, yes, yeah, yeah, and I, I had a, I had a difficult time with that. But you know, something like that can happen. This one seems to me to be a, a real, uh, really problematic. And the fact that Melody is not in this episode at all, she's yes. just referred to but she's not in it uh kenny's in it for a a minute but but melody isn't and that removes any opportunity that they had to give any layer to why she said what she said Mm -hmm. you know so i just don't get it it, it's it, it, it to me the the moment they say in check it out see if he's still a private investigator the first thought in my head was, well, that's not going to work. So I thought that's a mm-hmm. dead end that they're going on right there. But then a few minutes later when that scene comes up, I thought, oh, that worked. How did that work? What, yeah. It wasn't, isn't, is it, it wasn't, it wasn't this, why? I mean, the only thing I could think of was, yeah, it's just Melody being sort of wistful and being like, he'll be back, he'll be back. And just, yeah. but still, he's a, he's a detective who goes on. You know, you remember that time when Rex went undercover in the Los Angeles? What? No, was, where where was he? Somewhere in the Midwest prison system? The, Michigan, Michigan. That? He wound up. Yeah. Michigan. Do you remember uh-huh. when he did that? You know, you wouldn't have if if someone had called that. You would have kept. You know, you would have. So yeah, that that is one of those mo- unfortunate moments where I I. I, 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 you, you kind of think I really wish the writer would have, s- or so, maybe like whoever the 
story. I don't, I don't fully know. I mean, I, I think at this time it was just like you hired someone, they wrote a script, and you know maybe you rewrote a little bit here and there, but you pretty much did the script. It wasn't writers' room style stuff. You you hired someone. Well, you remember, yeah. You remember the famous cartoon you've got where this uh, professor has this incredibly complicated algebraic equation on the blackboard, and then at the end of it, it says, "And then a miracle occurs." And it, it <laughs> this strike this strikes me as an example of that that you you the writer had to figure out how to get from point A to point B with a in a minimal amount of time with a minimal yes. amount of explanation necessary, and so he chose something that accomplishes that but it's stupid yes that's yep 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 (laughs) like with with the 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 limp with the limp as you said like there must be a moment where cal will be like no one can see me i'll I'll leave this limp behind just for a minute not realizing Mm -hmm. that someone is watching him but but this is this is it's it's funny like i i can I like some writer modern day writers room stuff and I don't like some stuff. I think it can be overwritten to the point where it's like it doesn't even make sense sometimes anymore. Yeah. Um I think I think you need like one, two, three people with a vision doing you know uh, and I'll refer to like Doctor Who, you know, modern day Doctor Who, you'll get episodes that stink to high heaven, but they stink to high heaven honestly because they mm-hmm. they tried something and it didn't work. Whereas, like, if you get a show written by a room full of writers and it stinks, then there's a worry that that room full of writers stinks and they shouldn't be doing this. But I'm sorry. But but I but I think like if okay, I'll go. There's like what I I, I don't remember what X Files episode it was, but there was one around like the fourth or fifth season of the show when it was absolutely huge, where like Vince Gilligan I think talks about writing a script and. Uh, being at a point where he couldn't figure out how to get from A to C, more or less. He couldn't figure out what B was. And so he got together with two of the other writers on the show, and they just like walked around in a backyard or something for an hour, just thinking, how about this? How about that? How about this? And then they finally got it. And when they got it, they said it was the most obvious thing in the world, but it wasn't like coming to them. And I almost yeah. wish like Dean Reisner, who'd written this, had gone and said, "Hey, I need to bring uh, Rex in, but I the only way I can think of to do it is like this. But this doesn't make any sense." And I I almost you know I I I don't think the producers would have said something like, "We have thirty nine hour long episodes to make in like thirty nine weeks." write whatever you write and we'll go from there. No one's going to be talking about this in 50, 60 years. How many years ago was it? You know, no one's going to be talking about it, you know? So, 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 but I'd love it if he could clearly, this writer has everything in his head, but this one point and he needed help and he didn't get the help he needed. So he went with what he had and you're right. That moment that that happens, I thought, really? And then it immediately leads to what leads to the climax. Mm-hmm. I thought ah, that could have been that could have been handled better than that. Yeah, it, it yeah, turned out ultimately it it was a bridge too far. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, <sighs> 
Sorry, folks, we, it's we, late. <laughs> oh no, sorry, sorry, folks, it's late. I apologize. I've I've kept Mitchell up late. We um we record uh, to draw the curtain back. We record a bunch of episodes at once, and I arrived home late, and we talked about things for a while, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna say I guess I'll say Mitchell, do you have anything else? I'm gonna look at my notes one last time. Um, one thing that I it shows you how cool Cal is. And and I've always thought he was cool, but this proves it. He's driving a convertible with his hat on, gets involved in a police chase, which he's doing intentionally. He, the man is driving 80 miles an hour in a convertible down a highway, and his hat stays in place the entire time. Now, if that isn't yes. cool, I don't know what is. I think we'll end it here. That's great. Mitchell, where can we find you online? <laughs> um, you can find me at itsabouttv.com. And if you go to that site, you'll also see links to uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and uh, as well as uh, information about my books. The one that you'll probably be most interested in is The Electronic Mirror, and it's a study of how classic television teaches us about uh, who we were and who we are and everything in between. Thank you so much uh, for joining me for this one. Hey, 24 episodes in, folks. Hooray! Neon Yay. Noodle. Uh, yay! Um, you know what? I don't really have anything else. I, I am going to – I'm just going to ask all you listeners, go to – I guess um, uh, go to Midas, Midas County. I, I'm, I'm imagining it's outside of New Orleans. And I want you guys to find 911 River Street, Apartment C – and tell me who who lives there, and A, who lives there, and B, is there smooching going on? The United States of America would like to invite you to come spy with me. Tonight, adventures looking in your window, something out of the Come with me now and let's explore the secret passions. I come see your someone special. everybody let's go to portugal for the episode five days the sixth episode yes of masquerade aired january 19th 1984 where were you i don't know where i was on that date i know that three days later i was watching diamonds are forever on network tv on whatever station what station did this air on hey i'm here with amanda reyes hey. everybody how are you <laughs> i'm good it, it aired on abc Okay, um, I, and and you could when when you watch these episodes, they always um, uh, when they do the uh, and Cl cliffhangers had the same thing. Every episode of cliffhangers and most of the episodes of masquerades masquerade when you get to the closing credits. This is David Hardman tomorrow on Good Morning America, 
And then after that, they mention um, they're showing Diamonds Are Forever on Sunday. And I remember watching Diamonds Are Forever on a Sunday night on the network in the first half of the 80s. Um, we moved in, in the house I grew up on in until I was 12. And we moved a year after this aired. So that would have been that date. So I can tell you where I was three days after this aired, but not the day itself. So um, written by Mark Rogers and Glenn A. Larson, directed by The Moxie. Um, yay! Yay! It's good, to, it's good to have, it's nice to have him for two episodes in a row. Um, yes, it is. Uh, so, so I guess I will, gosh, uh, you know what? I, I have less names, fewer names, less names written down for this one than I did the last one we talked about. I'm going to do my best. So this episode begins in Bulgaria, everyone's favorite vacation spot. And you basically, you see a guy running from people who are shooting at him. He gets shot. He dies. He hands a microchip or a micro something over to, not microfilm, like the, the Family Ties TV movie, you know, where they, um, they had to, there was microfilm. It's like a microchip uh, to a woman named Katya. And he says, you have to get this to Greg Evigan. He doesn't say that specifically, but that's what he's going, that's what she's going to do. And you see her next in Portugal. She, I think she's around Lisbon, and she is at the airport going through customs. Greg Evigan as, is there as Danny. Unfortunately, she has a fake passport because she's a spy sneaking out of, of Bulgaria. She is arrested and sent to an Al Alcatraz-type prison and it's very woman in prison type um so so think of your women in prison movies think of your favorite and that's where she is sent and so she is there and we learn from lavender as he talks to casey and danny that what she had in a microchip was information about a very special a very special episode of masquerade a very special submarine that the U.S. was using, I forget where they were using it, somewhere near Bulgaria. I didn't look up where Bulgaria was, so I don't, somewhere in the, near the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, and the thing with the sub was it was doing reconnaissance, but it was not sending long-range radio stuff out because it was a secret um, sub. Uh, but there was a spy, the guy who got shot in Bulgaria, who was monitoring it. The sub went down. They have five days from that conversation in the limo to get the information on where the sub is so a rescue crew can arrive there. Think of Airport 77. You know, the plane is there. It's about to fall in that crack in the earth, and they have to get a rescue, find some way to get a rescue crew there. That's kind of what um, uh, their purpose is here. This woman in this prison has this microchip. They have to get the microchip and save 120, 125 um, soldiers, um, Navy guys and gals uh, in the in the submarine, and um, so what they do is they recruit. I've suddenly completely forgotten who they recruit for this. Um, they recruit a woman who does impersonations. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very small, like sort of gang they get together this time. But you're right. It's a woman who does impressions, and apparently she's an American woman who does impressions of Latinas. And, and, um, and, um, oh gosh, why, why am I blanking? Oh, Audrey Hepburn. Well, not Audrey Hepburn. Jay, no, who oh. am I thinking of? Spencer Tracy. Uh, no, on Golden Pond, why am I blanking on the Hepburn? Catherine Hepburn. Uh, Catherine Hepburn. Catherine, Jeez, Catherine Hepburn. 
yes, she does a she does a on Golden Pond thing. The loons, the lo- you know, and it's like wow, and everyone laughs, and it's fun. I think we have different episodes because when they show her on TV, she's speaking Spanish. Oh, do the 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 one um when they when they watch her little video in in the limo she does like the loons and the calalilies and and which to me is um is Hepburny stuff isn't it yeah is that not yeah but I'm serious I have I have her speaking Spanish what oh wow yes yeah oh that's crazy. It's possible she was doing Catherine Hepburn and I thought it was Spanish, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> it was Spanish. Okay, I, I, I feel like there was some Spanish there, and then at the end she does um, On Golden Pond. Uh, something, something okay, that makes me feel a little better because we have we have the same recordings because I also have that Diamonds Are Forever tag at the end, okay. so it would be weird All to right. think that we watched the same recording yes. but with different, different scenes. Different audio, yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, they they bring yeah they bring on a woman who can do voices and we'll explain in a minute why they bring her on they bring on a couple uh, a guy an older gentleman who's actually Portuguese but now American citizen who is a captain ship's captain of of sorts and his wife who is I don't know she's sort of Sheena Easton esque I, I don't know I don't quite know how to describe uh, her she's by a, way she's of a da- by way of Brooklyn. Yes. Okay. That that's like, perfect. She looks oh, like the lead singer. Oh, it's so singer. dainty. He, I'm a lady. I'm a lady <laughs> she looks, dancer. She looks like the lead singer of the heavy metal band Black Lace, who no one has ever heard but me from the mid '80s, and they were they were like a Brooklyn heavy metal band. Um, oh, that makes sense then, because her accent is quite apparent in this to me. Yes. Yeah. And she, so she's a dancer and she's dancing to, um, covers of David Bowie songs and she's very rambunctious <laughs> so and throwing up her arms and spinning. And it's just like, it's a weird thing because the cover is not good and her dancing, I guess is okay, but matched with, I, I'm no. not a dancer. I don't know. It could be bad. Was it, was it just like, was she's it just doing, rambunctious? She's- She's doing the dances that you do when you don't know how to dance. You know, like that thing you do with your hands where you make a little wave with them? Yes, yes And then she yes. puts the hands next to her face, and then she takes them back and forth like you're, like the running motion you do when you pretend like yes. you're running in place, the hand <laughs> motion. I'm doing it right now, actually. And, yeah. and can, that's all she does. Mind. And it's like the it's like dancing that people who have never danced do that feel stupid dancing, so they do stupid things. And... Yes. I feel like I'm wearing my David Bowie shirt today in tribute to the horrible cover of David Bowie, because <laughs> I want to I want to reappropriate back his legacy. Yeah, and and, and, and the only song that they do reason. is yeah, the only song they do is Let's Dance. They just do they just play probably different versions of it, but it's a cover song of Let's Dance. But to just not to get off topic. But the thing, one of the things that fascinates me about 80s TV and probably 70s TV, but more prominent in 80s TV, is how much they wanted to use hit songs, but they yes. didn't want to pay for the rights to the original recording, so they always got cover bands. And I like it. Like, I don't like this cover in particular, but it's so fascinating because when you were a kid, of course, you listen to Karma Chameleon all the time, right? And then it comes on like Knight Rider, and it's somebody else. And you're really upset because you're like, that's Culture Club song. You know, what are you doing? 
well, and and the I think the the ultimate show for doing that is Glenn A. Larson, B.J. and the Bear. Every episode yeah. of B.J. and the Bear is loaded with, and that's apparently what the, what they say um, is holding up B.J. and the Bear coming out on DVD or Blu-ray. I can't think of any other reason. It must be the music. And yeah, but maybe they can put the originals in, spend a little money, and like actually reintegrate. Yeah. Yeah, people will buy it. People will buy it. Yeah, and the the thing with the BJ and the Bear music is almost every and when I reviewed it on my Polish American Guy reviews things blog, I mentioned this a lot. Almost every single song that BJ listens to or plays in the soundtrack makes me want to jump off a bridge. So so that's it's a show that I love, even though almost every song makes me want to eat a bag of razors. And uh, I say that in the, the happiest way. I like yeah, that. okay. <laughs> I like that. That's got to eat a bag of raisins. Um, no, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so so here's the thing. When when you see this this woman dancing, she's like, I, she, she's, you know, she's lovely. And um, I'm a leg man. And so I was enjoying that. But I was also watching it thinking, is that good dancing? Or is that just someone throwing up their hands and spinning around? Because I can do that. That's what it is. Um, the ladder. Okay. I could do okay. that. Yeah. I could. They could have yeah. hired me and to do that or choreograph what she did. And I would have happily have done it for them and they would have gotten the same results. You know what? Uh, I, what, I, what I just thought of dance-wise, uh, there's a movie that just came out on Blu-ray called Night Killer. Uh, Severin just put it out. Yes. And the opening scene. Yeah, Smith. Fant- yeah, uh, no, no, no. A Night Killer, the Claudio Fragasso film. Oh, uh, what am I thinking of? What is the... Never mind, we're going to get off on a tangent up. again. Oh, yeah, Robert yeah. Mitchum so and Jacqueline Smith. I, we'll find out in a moment. Uh, have I asked you what you okay. thought of the episode? Because you can tell me what you thought of it, and I'll look that up. Okay. <laughs> I like this episode. I think it's fun. Um, it's not my favorite. I don't like the woman who's dancing. Um, she annoyed the crap out of me, but whatever. It happens. But this movie is made... This movie, this episode is made watchable for two very specific reasons, and I will tell you what they are. The first one is Joe Santos, who plays Raul Salazar, because Joe Santos has more energy than anybody else in the cast. He's brilliant in this performance. It's probably the best performance we've seen so far on Masquerade. It's like somebody hired him, and he said, oh, look, an acting job. I'm going to actually act. And you can feel it when you're watching it. It's very, very, very entertaining. And not to mention, the the three leads are great. But of all the guest stars that they've had, Joe Santos so far has stood out as the best of the best. He's wonderful. And his right-hand man is played by a guy whose name I'm going to butcher. It's Aaron Ippole, who I know best from an episode of Romance Theater called Escape to Love. And it is the only romance theater I have in my collection, and I own every romance theater. Um, that I've watched on multiple occasions because he was so fucking sexy in the 70s and early 80s. Here he's looking not the same, and I hate to say that because he's still wonderful, but like that raw, I want to sit on you (laughs) sexuality. (laughs) I don't know how to word that. It's so, he's in a TV movie called The Hostage Heart, and he's only in like, He's a background character in it. Like, he has some lines, but he's really just a support. He is so hot. I had to have that movie the second I saw him in it. The second I saw him in it. And I and sometimes 
you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, I really want to look at a really sexy guy for, I don't know, 120 minutes. I'm going to put on Romance Theater's Escape to Love. I'm going to do it and I'm going to love it. And so, so him being in this episode really like shot it up many, 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 many levels for me. So really, I think the episode, the storyline is like all the other storylines. You don't need to know the story. It's kind of, and also, this is one where they try to discredit the bad guy, and but it's hilarious yes. because it's like he's on a teen vacation. It's like a fucking spring break, and he like yes. destroys everything because he wants to party. Basically, is what happens, yeah. Yeah. and it's his undoing, and it's beautiful. But um, but Joe Santos in the part is amazing. Anybody who watches this episode, just sit back and watch Joe Santos act. It's one of the craziest, and I mean crazy, wonderful things you've ever seen. I found it's uh, it's a uh, night kill. Uh, Night Kill, that's what I'm thinking of. The the great Ted Post of of Do Not Fold, Spindle, or Mutilate, and Hang Them High uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. The Baby. baby. Yes, lots of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. I don't know if I've seen Night Kill, but I know that video cover. I know that 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 image. Yes, the famous. the woman like the like the naked woman in the foreground screaming as like the the silhouette of the man is behind her in like a window yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something um, like that. Yeah, it's, it's really evocative. It's not a great film, but it just came out on Blu-ray too, and it's actually getting kind oh, of a new wow. audience. And maybe I need to re- reappraise it because a lot of people who have seen it who never didn't see it when it came out are oh. saying that they think it's a really underrated film. So I need to revisit it. But one of the major uh, Blu-ray distributors that do like the neat stuff, they just put it out. So that's why I thought okay. you were talking about it. Oh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, there's a, a, a film that I'd never heard of till about three months ago when I saw it in the big screen, uh, Claudio Fragasso's Night Killer, which is a weird erotic thriller slasher made in the, like, Louisiana or something in, like, 89, 90, around the time he did Zombie 4 and Troll 2. And it begins with a dance sequence on a stage where you watch the dancers and can't think, like, are they actually, is that good dancing or is that just a bunch of people like a bunch of extras they just hired for the day and dancing, which is, I well, just, I just, the, uh, please. The lady in this episode, she's no sweetheart dancer. No, not at all. Not at all. It's, it's funny. Did you, I mean, you, you sort of got the same vibe from her, right? That, um, uh, uh Joe Santos's character, um, is it Raul Salazar? I think as the characters, yeah, I could get that. Yeah. Um, he really falls for her, but I, I, um, uh, she never quite, um, she never grabs, she, uh, say it. I, I, I feel like she should grab my attention, but she never does. She kind of is like, uh, She's not well, a great dancer. Okay, okay. She's not a particularly good actress, and her hair no. isn't great. Here's here's a good talking point for us, Dan. Okay, yes. so we recently viewed the Caribbean. What's it called? Caribbean Holiday, Caribbean Holiday, which was the episode that aired, yeah, prior to this. And it's basically the same idea that they're going to bring a woman on to this mission to sort of uh, distract the bad guy. Yes. So both episodes have that. But in the other episode, we had Anne Turkel, who looks like a supermodel, so that she already she has got that going for her. But also she plays a very independent, strong character. She's a real estate – she's the world's foremost real estate agent who talks yes. about making billion-dollar 
you know, uh, sales with freaking sheiks and stuff, going to all these different countries. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and where she just has to deal with men who don't respect women very much and doing these huge deals and like, and like making bank. And then we've got this, and she's, and she seems like that kind of person, right? Like you buy her as that character. Yeah. And then here in this other one, we've got almost like a Pygmalion type character where it looks like she hasn't been done up yet. And so, like, she's got the raw, because there's nothing wrong with her. She's pretty, and, you know, she's okay in that part, but but she's almost like, that's like the raw talent before they come in and fix her up and make her the great beauty yes. that is sitting within her or whatever. So, like, so like I don't understand Ral's attraction to her because she's not, like, she doesn't stand out from the crowd. And I don't mean the actress doesn't. The actress is lovely. There's nothing wrong with her. But I mean, like, in the part, it's like she's miscast. She doesn't stand out at all as somebody okay. that would attract yeah. the attention of of this huge, you know, he's very high up in the politics of this country, right? He's corrupt. He probably has yeah. lots of women around him. Matter of fact, we saw prostitutes at his house at the end. So, like, the fact that this woman stood out to him seems really tenuous at best. Yeah. No, I, I, I think both times I watched this episode. <laughs> Say it. Both times I watched this episode, I watched her and I thought, I don't think she's doing very good dancing. And I'm not a fan of her <laughs> hair. And when when he goes, when Raul goes kind of nuts for her, uh, and, and sort of, it's it's not only that he goes nuts for her, it's like Greg Evigan's Danny goes nuts for her, kind of, calmly. And, you know, um, and Casey has to tell him to calm down. And it's one of those things where everyone is telling you how, how like, oh, my God, look at her. Oh, my God. And I sat there the whole time watching her going, I'm not getting it. Yeah, she's cute. but I'm, And she looks nice in a bikini. But I'm, there's something lacking in... I hate to say I hate to say it's it's the the performance, but I guess it could be the performance. But Moxie is usually so good at getting stuff out of folks. Um, I just he was, feel like they, he was dating her, obviously. Probably. I mean, I what I felt like was yeah <laughs> that either that that either it was like Glenn A. Larson was like this is my protege, or or um or yeah Mr. Moxie was like I'm going to cast her, and Glenn was like. Why? Trust me. And like even like watching her with her husband, um, that doesn't seem right either. It it just like seems like no. they're like why why is she with him? He's like this he's but, like twenty years older or something and, and uh, but maybe maybe it's a Pygmalion thing. We, I, I don't know. We we haven't talked about the story yet at all. Have we gotten to the plot? Because I want to bring up a blooper I think I caught with the I husband did. and wife. Um, I started the. Pl- I, I began to explain okay. what they were getting up to. It. <laughs> we oh, got sorry. Uh, oh, so, sorry. so so yeah, it's um so no 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 so so yeah, it's it's the dancer wife and the, and the the captain husband and then Kirstie Alley is going to go get herself put into the prison and um, um, meet up with a um, uh, uh, American gal who's in the prison and try to recruit her to help get the Bulgarian gal out. Meanwhile, Lavender and the gang, including the dancer and the husband, um, are trying to get uh, uh, the 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 mayor is out of town. The mayor's wife is Raul's sister. Raul is corrupt. He's awful. He wants to be the mayor, and 
Um, and Lavender goes to a gentleman whose name I didn't write down. Herrera or something like that? I could be making that completely up. Um, and he, is that is that his he, right-hand man? That's the guy, yeah, that's like Salazar's right-hand man. It's this guy who... That's, that's, uh, that's the guy from Escape to Love. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that, oh, right, all right. Um, I, but I didn't write down his name. Um, and so it's Guerrero. It's Guerrero. Oh, it's Guerrero. Okay. And um, and Lavender goes to him and says, "Tell Salazar that we're getting rid of the mayor and he's going to take over." So Salazar, like you said, and he just believes him. Like a, yes, he immediately believes him. And becomes like a like a like a crazed you know frat boy just having a party. It's like we're getting king frat, <laughs> and he just wants to party and go so nuts. Good. And, and so he, he good. And he wants. Yeah, it's fun, and he winds up at the casino, and he sees the dancing gal, and basically what it is, is it is the mayor's away, and we distract the guy who thinks he's the mayor and is also in charge of the prison as we're trying to get the Bulgarian woman with the uh, microchip, which she has enameled into a fingernail, out. And the the, the um, complication is that the Bulgarian government knows she's in there and they're trying to get her out too. And so it's like trying to discredit Salazar or make him look like a boob um, and also trying to get the woman out in time. And um, and yeah, as you said, uh, Joe Santos, he, he really goes for it, which is that he's, he's I'll, I'll be honest, I, I didn't really like this episode, but I really liked him in this episode. I love him in Rockford Files. Oh, so good. I, I absolutely yes. adore him in that. And I really like because he, he just he's having. I mean, like there there's a there's a moment where so so the woman who's doing the voices, they have her imitate the mayor, the sister, his sister, the mayor's wife voice, basically saying he's dead. The mayor's dead. And so. Um, uh, uh, Lavender is leaning against a desk in the mayor's house, which um, Salazar thinks he now owns or is lives in. And sort of to the right behind Lavender, you see Salazar on the phone hearing his sister talk. And this is great acting and this is great moxie. Um, you got a lot of moxie, kid. And you get Salazar on the phone, and this woman is impersonating the voice. And Salazar's like, oh, no, he's dead. And he hangs up the phone. And then in one shot, you get Salazar, like, with his hand on his heart, like, oh, my God, this is so sad. And he walks behind Lavender, and the camera pans following Salazar. And you see Lavender, who's facing us, not Salazar, with the look on his face, like, come on, come on, come on. And as you follow Joe Santos, his face goes from, oh, God, to, oh, and then he rounds the desk, approaches Lavender, and he's like, this is all mine. And it's just, and Lavender's face is like, yes, we got him. And it's such a good shot. It's so well framed. It's so well acted. And it's, it's really lovely. It's, it's really a nice uh, moment. Um, the problems I have with the episode are um, that you I, it's it's weird. I love Joe Santos so much, but as I was watching it, I thought, shouldn't there be more going on in the prison? Because they're trying to get a yeah. woman out of prison. They're they're trying to save this gal because they show this American gal this this pretty blonde, and they sh they show her just like like 
well, she's been tortured. She, they tortured her and they beat her, and and she's in really bad shape. And they're also they're trying to get the the Bulgari Katya out of there, and yet it's more focused on Joe Santos fooling around with this strange elfin dancer, and um, <laughs> and, and, and when they and, and, and when the uh, the 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 gal the American gal the blonde gal she initially says to Kirstie Alley the last time I tried to escape they tortured me so no I'm not going to help you but then she kind of does help later on when a Bulgarian like Rosa Kleb type agent tries to kill Katya uh, she helps um, but it's not it's it's funny because they go out of their way to introduce this character and I forget her name which is Ter- Julie. Possibly, I think her name might be Julie, uh, the American. No, gal. yes, yes, it is, it is. Um, and they go out of their way to sort of introduce her, like, here's how she looked, here's how she looks now. How they got those pictures, I'm not 100 percent sure. But then they kind of mostly ignore her, and like when Kirstie Alley is saying to her, uh, and you can see how ravaged she has been being tortured in this prison. Like, you have to help me. A hundred lives are at stake, and you could see her sort of looking at her, going. Hey, last time I tried to help you guys, I ended up getting tortured. And you think, like, I'd love to help 100 people, too, but if the rest of my life is going to be spent in a prison getting tortured, I'd prefer not to get tortured today. And there's something weird about that plot line where they bring it up, but then they don't they don't follow through on sort of important points. They just hit, like, the major no. plot points. And then, well, then suddenly at the end, no. when they're all sitting in the room drinking... You know, it's like, oh, Julie, thank you for your help. And she's sitting there like, oh, sure. It's like, ah, that 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 kind of, as much as I love the Joe Santos stuff, that, that prison stuff, it, there should have been, Glenn A. Larson does this sometimes, where he'll start, like, the Battlestar Galactica pilot, where he'll start telling a story, and you think, this is going to go to amazing places. And then you get to the end, and it's like, it went from a planet being destroyed to a bunch of people on a, like at a casino going in an evil elevator that goes down uh, to a lower floor and kills people what's going on so i i felt like sometimes he does this where he doesn't quite get um the he, he the focus is slightly off he it, they seem to be really focused on um sort of humiliating these important guys when really I thought it should have been more focused on the prison however i love the stuff with joe santos so i can't argue with that i just felt like it was a little off. I could be wrong. Well, uh, just a couple things. Uh, so it, her name wasn't Julie. Julie was the woman who did the impressions, who she is a comedian, actor, and voiceover artist. And she's uh, been on The Simpsons for 20-something years. She does the voice of Luann Von Houten? Houten? Do you know Luann oh, wow. Van yeah, Houten? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she uh, does Bill several Houses. voices. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, she does several voices on The Simpsons. The girl that is in the prison is her. The actress's name is Robin Milan, and her character's name was Alicia. Yes, and Alicia the thing about yeah, the thing about the women in prison portion was that she was supposed to. They were trying to get her in on the mission. The prisoner that was there, Alicia because she had information on something, but all she ends up doing is sort of randomly helping the other girl not get murdered. But 
but we don't ever see or exchange any kind of information that's important. And it's just a happenstance that the hit person happens to be in the prison to kill the other girl and she helps out. So really it, her storyline doesn't really have serve a purpose at all. I, uh, but, but it is a woman uh, in prison thing. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think there, 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 there's that moment like that where she, she does help out, but it's she's helping out with like you said something that they didn't foresee happening. And there's another moment. Correct. There's another moment earlier on, and this this, like I said, I love some of this episode so much, but some of this episode I just think is sloppy. Glennie Larson, like I said, I think does this sometimes. There's a one more. There's a Buck Rogers where Buck lands on a planet, and he's taken prisoner thrown in a cage with a bunch of other men and he doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't know what's happening and he winds up um, fighting for his life uh, uh, to like the the joy of a bunch of women, like Amazon type women and he's like, and you sort of like what's going on, what's happening but actually the viewer isn't only Buck is, because the way Glenn A. Larson writes the episode is it's star, or I believe he wrote the episode. If he doesn't, I'm 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 a douche. But no, I think he wrote the episode. Um, it begins with you see the Amazon women on the planet. You see them sort of with the men in cages. You see them um, uh, having these men fight for them, and then Buck arrives, and then they treat sort of Buck's um, what he's up to as like what's happening to Buck Rogers. But we already saw it. So it's it's every once in a while Glennie Larson does these weird plot things where it's like why are you doing that and I just think that that women in prison thing is a little um, is a little off and what is it oh oh it so um, the Guerrera goes to Salazar and says Lavender wants there's so many names Lavender wants to see you and the premise behind that is that uh, Casey is in a car on the road outside of the mayor's mansion and she's going to pretend she's going to drive them off the road pretend to be drunk and get thrown into prison she does some great drunk stuff Kirstie Alley but the problem is that the the premise is um, Guerrero says okay let's get in my car and drive to Lavender but then uh, uh, Salazar says no no let's get in the mayor's car Okay, so <laughs> Casey is Casey is sitting on the side of the road waiting for a specific car to come down the street, and it's this is a split second thing. I mean, she has to drive up immediately when she sees the car coming. She sees a completely different car coming from the one that Guerrera is in, and yet she still is able to get up there and do that. And I thought that's a little sloppy. I think um, I get what they're doing with um, Jay Santos's character that now that he thinks he's the mayor, he wants to ride the mayor's kick-ass car, but it's also doesn't make sense because she, she, every, every car that goes down the road, she doesn't drive up to and drive off the road. And when she drives that car off the road, it hits a tree and a tree falls down. So this is a big drive off. the Yeah. Road. I well, just think there. She took think, a chance that she didn't murder sp- anybody. Yeah, it, it, that, that's the thing. I, uh, be, because I, I th- to me, the plan was 
Guerrero would be driving the car, his car, which she would have seen, and and um, uh, Salazar would be in the passenger seat. Instead, it's a completely different car with switched passengers. And Salazar is in the driver's seat. So it's like, and she hits pretty close to the side there. And it's it's just a strange moment where it's like the first time I watched the episode, it didn't occur to me. I was like, whatever. Uh, it's fun. It's fun to watch. You know, it's fun to watch Kirstie Alley pretending to be drunk. And then to continue to discredit Sal- Salazar, they get the dancer and her husband, who are supposed to be now brother and sister, because she's dancing at this club, and she's with Lavender, I think, or Greg Evigan. She's with Greg Evigan, and she's with her husband and this guy. And I love when they see her at the club at the beginning when they're recruiting her, because she's just dancing with all her clothes on. I love those clubs yeah. that aren't strip clubs, but they somehow have dancers. And Greg Evigan's like, oh, look at that, which is like whatever. And then um, and then they're like, well, you'll have to get through her husband first. And he looks real serious about not letting anybody go through him to her. Mm-hmm. And so then they're at this dinner table, and, and Salazar's like, oh, I have to have that. And her husband's like, he is swine. He is swine. And so anyway – they somehow talk him into charting a boat, but he says, oh, you don't have to charter a boat. I have the best yacht in all the country. You come to my yacht tomorrow, and I will take you on the sea. And so they're like, okay, let's meet you there. And so basically what they do is, I don't know what they're doing on the boat exactly, but she's flirting <laughs> with them, and they kiss a little, and the guy that's the husband, who's now her brother, is somehow captaining the ship. And the part that there's a little, like, error is that she's kissing Joe Santos and then the husband comes around and she says, Oh, we better stop or my husband will see you. But I was yes. like, aren't they supposed yep. to be brother and sister? Yeah. And, and I thought I that was weird. And Oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, that, that yeah, yeah. Because it's my brother, my brother. And then she's in a bikini. She comes out of the water. Oh, the water's fine. Oh, let me give you some, a couple of kisses. And then you see the husband looking over. Oh, my husband will see us. And I and I wrote down in my notes, sister slash brother. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's supposed to be her husband? Yeah, no, you're you're right. That's a little. That's a yeah, little, the typo. And then and then so the whole reason why they even did all this was so that they could blow up his boat because it's not his boat; it belongs to his brother-in-law. So they went through mm-hmm. all of that where they recruited a couple and they forced <laughs> forced a woman who's married to make out with a corrupt leader of another country, of a developing country, <laughs> just so that they could blow up his freaking boat so that his brother-in-law will get mad. Yes, yes. And and also so that they could delay the Bulgarian <laughs> um, uh, the Bulgarian ambassador, whoever, is at the oh. prison at that time. Stop and, adding um, logic. <laughs> No, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I think I'm with. You. I'm not. I'm not going to add that bit of logic. The, uh, the Bulgarian guy. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> no, you're but, right. Uh, but yeah. So, so yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll just say it real quick. It's the Bulgarian uh, ambassador is already uh, at the prison saying, "Okay, here's the extradition papers. Let her out." And the woman in charge says, "I can't let her out unless I hear from the mayor, and he's on vacation, or the guy in charge of prisons, and we can't get through to him." And they keep contacting. Salazar, but the husband is the captain, and so he keeps getting the calls and saying um, the yeah. uh, he has said that he's not going to talk to anyone. So that's kind of holding everyone off. But it's it's kind of slightly odd because it's actually holding everyone off so they can blow up the boat, get back to 
the house, the mayor's mansion, he can learn about the dead mayor, in quotes. He can throw a party with prostitutes, and then his brother could show up and then offer asylum to the... But it gets very overcomplicated. The more I say it, it shouldn't be that complicated, should it? The sting wasn't this complicated. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Well, yeah, that's... It wasn't. Yeah, um, yeah it's... it's, it's um, you know, I applaud them for, for sort of going all the way with craziness here, but I think they are um, sort of confusing, like, just like general complications with sort of complexity in this episode. It's, it's, one, <laughs> thing to, um, it, it's one thing to tell a complex story. Like Mission Impossible used to do that a lot, not that – I think that's a good example because that, that's sort of where the, the genesis of this show is – but um, like Mission Impossible would do these complex episodes that would work out to something. Generally, the ones I've seen, I, I haven't seen a ton of them. But this just feels like it's it's overdoing it, and it throws a women in prison plot that really doesn't go anywhere. And it's implied that like Kirstie Alley is sort of slapped, a, well, slap, yeah, slapped around and mistreated too. That's right. And it's like, and it's like this is um, it's. <laughs> It's a weird episode, you know. It's like of the episode. This is probably my least favorite of the 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 first oh. six. I don't um, know the hitman. You know the Russian guy <laughs> with the hitman chasing him. You know Sasha yeah, yeah. with um. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't like that one. I think that I think that was a, du- a dumb one. This one I think is more aggressively like. It's it's just going wrong in spots, and I think, like you said, focus on Joe Santos's performance because he. I don't know if he's doing a good Portuguese um, accent, but I'm with him all the way, and he's so much. He's having so much fun because it's implied at the beginning that he is he's corrupt, but he's always sort of in deference to his brother-in-law. But then the moment Guerrero shows up and Lavender says, you know, we'll be the American government will be giving you twenty thousand a week to do what we want, he's just like he's just like a, a kid in a candy shop, and he's so much fun to can, watch. His, his can we talk women, about the end? I, yes, yes, please. So, so he thinks everything is his. He thinks his brother in law is dead, and he has this beautiful house, and he's going to be the mayor of wherever and so he invites all these prostitutes over to the house and then he's like hey let's burn my brother-in-law's painting because i'm so distraught about his death and so and so there's all these women there's a couple guys there there's all these women and they're in the house and they're running rampant and it's hilarious and he just he takes the painting outside and he lights it on fire and then who pulls up but the brother-in-law and then Lavender's like tricked ya like you know it's like this really weird yeah. like you know fooled ya we gotcha and uh, yeah. and and then he's like why are you burning my painting well <laughs> you know stuff happens brother-in-law but it's just this really funny ending because he's like having such a party and then like and then it's just like we oh you know what's the word you want gotcha like in killer party yes yeah yeah exactly yeah and and two it's it's again one of those moments where it's like he shows up the the brother-in-law shows up right at the moment where he decided to take the picture off the wall and burn it so it's it's a wow this is lavender sometimes it's like you don't even have to try 
everything just happens. No. And all the prostitutes ran down the hill when they saw the car pull up. It yeah, was hilarious. So, so it was just him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. And they're just like leaving in an orderly fashion, like single file. They're going down the driveway. And I, oh, and yeah. They're like, reason, Pete, don't fail me now. <laughs> I, um, uh, yeah, for some reason, yeah, I, I, I don't know the way, I don't know much about Portugal, so I don't know if this is the sort of thing that happens there. Um, from having watched a lot of, like, Filipino action movies, like, all the prostitutes suddenly, suddenly showing up, felt like a Filipino film to me in some way, mm. because they're always, like, in, in action movies in, in the Philippines, like, they're always, like, prostitutes there. So I thought, where are we now? I don't know. It's Joe Santos, who isn't Portuguese, as far as I know, with a lot of um, random prostitutes who I don't know what's going on. But it's, well, uh, it's well, it, his right hand man is Middle Eastern. The actor, I'm pretty sure, is Middle Eastern. Oh, yes. Aaron Ippolay. And so you've got all these different countries, like with all these random accents, and you're not quite sure what they are, but they're all speaking English. So he's Moroccan. I'm sorry. Um, Aaron Ippolay is Moroccan. But um, and the, and so like and the woman who is the sister, like so when the girl that does the impressions is like, oh, I was in a horrible accident. My husband, he died, and it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Like that's her accent. And that's perfect, actually. I think. <laughs> and I. I mean. I, I, it doesn't exist, that accent. Yes, yeah, yeah. But the yeah, dancer, it, the dancer's accent is clearly from Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. She, can I, um, so I, I just had the scene playing where she comes out of the water and they, they have the mistake with, oh, my husband is, is looking over. Um, and she's in a bikini and she has these huge earrings on. I don't. I don't have my ears pierced. Do you wear huge earrings when you go swimming in the ocean, or do you take them off? No, I don't Should wear. Take them off. I don't wear earrings. I don't wear earrings. Okay, I chose the. I chose like the I have. Like I have. Everything. I think I wore like little diamond studs, but I don't oh, wear sure. earrings anymore. Okay. Yeah, I know, but in the eighties, you might. Oh, possibly. Yeah, I was going to say, because she comes out and she's in the bikini. And it's, she's such a weird... Who is that actress? I have no clue. I don't even remember the character's oh name. Oh, is it Paula Shaw? It. Was it Maritza? Was it oh, that Maritza? Was, yeah, that, that was... Um, that was. It wasn't Julie. No, no. Julie no, no, no. The, no, no, uh, Mar no Mar yeah. Maritza was the hit Mar woman. Um, I don't... I'm trying to do it by process of elimination here. Maria? Was it Maria? They had a Maritza and Maria in the same episode. Oh no, we're googling, folks. We're yeah, googling. it's her. Um, okay, okay, wait, wait. Okay. It's it was Maria, and the actress's name is Lycia Knapp, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, Miss Knapp, but um, I'm looking at her IMDb page, and she was a lead dancer on Fame, which I don't believe. And by the way, she's gorgeous. <laughs> She's absolutely gorgeous oh, in her IMDb photo. So I just, maybe they caught her at a bad time in her career here. This is the third thing she'd ever done. She hadn't, oh, she did Fame on Broadway. Oh, no, no, she was on the TV show. She was on Fame from 1982 to 1986. So she would have been dancing by the time she did Masquerade. So there's absolutely no excuse for her. None. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she, I, I applaud her hair for being able to stay so spiky. Regardless of what's going on. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I, I guess we'll talk about the episode rather than Googling for a few more minutes. I think, uh, where are you? What else do you have on this? Did we get to the end? Yes, we did. Okay. Yeah, we did. Yeah, uh, yeah, everybody works out in the end. Nobody cares that Kirstie Alley got the shit beat out of her. Um, but there is that great moment at the end where Danny comes up to her and tells her she did a really good job. And she's like, that meant a lot to me. And then he's like, yeah, if we ever have to have somebody go under prison, undercover in prison again, I'm going to recommend you. And she's like, I'll get you for that one, Danny. And then they start laughing. And it's a really sweet moment. I really like their friendship. They have a really nice yeah. friendship. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like the Even though that's a shitty line. The show. It's a super shitty line. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I think, um, I, I, think I, I feel like... Um, uh, we're we're, we're uh, like a lot of the short-lived shows. We're not going to get the full-on relationship that we should from these two, but we still have what seven episodes left. So who knows? Yay! Yay! Uh, so I'm gonna just—I I think that's all I have. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Watch. I say watch this for the Joe Santos and try not to be bothered by the women in prison stuff. I, you know, I love a good women in prison movie. I could watch them all day. I could I, actually probably not, but I, oh, I could, I, I by do. the way, I do, I do have one more thing to add. So John Llewellyn Moxie made sort of his bread and butter to a degree in women in prison because, you know, he did this episode. He did, as I mentioned in the last episode uh, of the Caribbean holiday one, that John Llewellyn Moxie also directed the murder. She wrote episode, Jessica behind bars, oh, yes. but he also directed the infamous Women in Prison TV movie, Nightmare in Badham County, which is TV at its grittiest and grimiest and most grindhousey, and he did a great job at that. So, now obviously Jessica Behind Bars doesn't have that same sort of grit to it at all, but this episode, that prison was pretty depressing, and they did a pretty good job sort of capturing sort of that, uh, what it would look like in a developing country, like our stereotype of what a prison would look like in a developing country. I think I think he did a really good job setting that up. Um, and so you believe the Alicia character when she's talking about being tortured and how she's like a shell of the person she was. And even at the end when they're like when they got her out, she didn't even look that happy. And so I think he kind of captured yeah. a reality to it in a way. I, I think I, I think yeah. When you see her at the end and she kind of Alicia raises her a glass of champagne, it's like she she she's like. She's the one at the party who's not having fun. She is the one who needs some therapy, stat, and maybe some something to you know keep her in shape. Um, but but she's like it's it's like if if it's 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 like the end of the Robert. It's this is not quite the end. Same thing, but the end of the Robert Altman film Brewster McCloud. I'm not going to spoil it, but when they they all the main cast come out dressed as circus characters, and there's an announcer. And I think it's William Wyndham, and they cut to all the main characters, and like Shelley Duvall and John Shuck, and you know, a Stacy Keach, and then they cut to Brewster, and I won't say what's happening because it'll be a spoiler, but Brewster isn't having as much fun as everyone else. What Alicia is up to here isn't quite that, but it's sort of the same thing because they cut to like the dancer, like you helped us out with Joe Santos because he was so crazy when he was pretending to be Portuguese, and she's like, "Hey," and he's like, "You, you're the husband. You were great too. Hey, and you, the forty seconds you did on the phone. Hey, and you, Alicia, being in prison <laughs> for several years and getting tortured every day, and she just like, hey, and it's sort of." Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of like that same thing. I I, th I think what it is is actually thinking about it. The realization is that 
the scenes with Joe Santos are so fun, and just seeing him suddenly becoming like he was under someone's thumb, and now he can be decadent, and he has all this money. But then when it cuts the women in prison scenes, I think Moxie, Mr. Moxie, is is doing them almost too well. I, I feel yes. like the script... I, I feel like maybe the script was like, okay, the focus isn't the women... Like when they were writing the script. Okay, the focus isn't the women... The women in prison stuff is the B plot. The main plot is the Joe Santos plot. But when Moxie shot it, having been... Uh, uh, sort of an expert in women in prison type stuff or or just being good he he made it too good and so you you're like why am i sitting here watching this guy goof around with this slightly strange looking woman um and her odd husband when kirstie alley and those other two women are being beaten in a prison uh yeah and, and he, he 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 makes it work and it's it's I, I think I said this once with the BJ and the Bear episode that I reviewed called BJ and the Witch, where the uh with Anne Marie Martin from Prom Night and Sledgehammer and the Boogans, where the premise behind the episode can't be sustained by the show because the premise is too serious. Um and when it ends you're like, No, BJ and the Bear can't do that. I think I think in this episode it's like that women in prison thing, it should have been either lighter or less grimy, or less something, but it just sits with you when you watch the scenes, and you think, why aren't we seeing more of that? Why aren't isn't that being developed more? And I think yeah. that's because they hired a really good director, a really great director, I would say, and it feels slightly off. So yeah, folks, if you watch the episode, this this is my least favorite of the first six. The Sasha one, I just find kind of dumb this one i find kind of more um wrong i guess and i'll go i'll go for wrong being tougher to watch than dumb i guess if there's a distinction there but um anything else on this one amanda did i go too far there when i was chatting you went you went too far <laughs> i went over the edge uh do you have anything else nope that's it yay um where can we find you online amanda what are you up to you just find me at Made for TV Mayhem. Um, just Google that and you'll find that's, I have a Facebook page called Made for TV Mayhem. I have an Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem and I'm on Twitter at Made for TV Mayhem. Uh, you and I also do a podcast called the Made for TV Mayhem Show and you can find that also on Facebook. Um, I think the Twitter is TV Mayhem Podcast. Um, and that doesn't have an Instagram. And um, I guess I'm doing a lot of stuff. I just don't know what's been announced, but I guess I did some um, liner notes recently that came out. So I did uh, the liner notes for Dream No Evil, which is part of the American Horror Project, which yes, came out this month I through have Arrow. It. I have it, yes. And I did um, liner notes for Arrow's release of Weird Science, which comes out at the end of July. And I also did a commentary for... Arrow's uh, release of The Prey with Arrow's own Ewan Kent. That comes out in September. And I also recently did a commentary with my friend Kayla Janice for a TV movie called The Girl Most Likely To, which came out through Kino Lorber in June. And I think that's everything that's been announced. Amanda's very busy, folks. Uh, and we're. I'm, we're, I'm a little uh, busy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's awesome to have you here. Um, and uh, so thank you again. And um, uh, and I guess 
I don't I don't know how to wrap this one up. I I guess I was going to say uh, I I love the Moxie, and I would say I'll, I'll wrap this up by saying either uh, after you listen to this, if you watch Five Days, get yourself a copy of Night Stalker on Blu-ray, or if you can find a copy, it's tougher to find. Uh, the Christopher George TV movie Escape, which is one I always recommend. Watch that because um, that's that's beautiful moxie. And I think these are the only two episodes he did of the show. Uh, this one and the last one, Caribbean Holiday. So mm, so we're kind of leaving the moxie behind here. But it was great to have him. So uh, let it us, was. Oh, we're at the end. Of, we're at the end of the episode, folks. Um, let's uh, let's go to me talking about the end of this episode. Thank you for listening, everyone. That was episode 74 of the show. And where can you find us online? Well, eventuallysupertrain.blogspot.com, Supertrain one on Twitter. Facebook is just eventuallysupertrain. Uh, email me at dannyslacks, D-A-N-N-Y-S-L-A-C-K-S at yahoo.com if you have anything you want to say. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back with episode 75. What? which will be uh, more fun with the gang. And uh, I'm so glad uh, you all are listening and enjoying, and thank you so much. I will talk to you next time. Please listen to this. Enter the world of Holi, Reb Brown, and so many heroes named Steve. 80s Action Movies on the Cheap is filled with insightful reviews about the films made during the decade that gave us big hair, shoulder pads, and yuppies. This book is an excellent guide through the action movies that didn't quite make blockbuster status, or in some cases, any status at all. Written with wit, good humor, a definite fondness, and minimal spoilers, this book is a must-have for film lovers. 80s Action Movies on the Cheap by Daniel R. Budnick is available now at Amazon and McFarlane Books.